also a reminder on the uh, picnic coming up. That and and a reminder: invite some friends if you want to. Uh, I've already invited a couple of friends to um, to come out and join us. So uh, be thinking about that, and we'll have a lot of fun. Keep praying for the weather. I happen to check the 15-day forecast on the Weather Channel, and it only goes to Thursday of that week. I want to check it last night. But Thursday, when, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of that week are like 40% chance of rain. But, you know, we had 40 50% chance of rain the last two or three days here, and I didn't get a drop at my house. So that doesn't necessarily mean that there will be any precipitation, although it's the church picnic, so that means somebody needs to start building a boat. Okay. I think that's about it for announcements. Anybody think of anything else coming up? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we need to be spiritually prepared which means we need to confess sin if necessary. Scripture says that uh, we are either carnally minded or we are spiritually minded, which means we are either walking according to the Holy Spirit or walking according to the sin nature. And in Romans chapter 8, it says that the carnal mind is at enmity with God, and it's just thinking like an unbeliever. So the only way to recover is to confess sin, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father, and instantly we are forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful we can come together this evening. We're thankful for your grace, your goodness to us. We're thankful that we have your word to open the eyes of our soul to truth and that we can understand truth and that truth is the benchmark of our lives. It's the, it, it, it's the lodestone that guides and directs us. It's the, that which gives us freedom, not in some mystical sense because it, is that which is reality, which you have created, and we can align our thinking with reality and therefore walk in wisdom and not as fools. Father, we pray for our nation. As we look around, we see horrible decisions being made, 
at every level of, of government and business, uh, we have become, we have slipped our anchor to any sense of, of morality and ethics. And as a result, this nation is headed to a, a terrible collapse. No nation in history has ever survived moral relativism. Once you get into moral relativism, it's just, uh, destroys any sense of the ability to communicate or to think or to even conduct uh, legal business. And, Father, the only solution is to uh, get back to your word. And, Father, we know that perhaps a collapse is what's necessary in order to get people to turn back to your word. But so often as we look at the history of Israel, that didn't happen. And if it did, it took decades. Father, we pray for this nation. We pray for godly leaders. We pray for attentive listeners that would be able to influence others from the foundation of your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, I took a little time during, I guess maybe it was at lunch, I was looking and perusing on the internet and looked at a number of articles in a number of different sites where I usually go as I hop around. And I'm just astounded. If I wasn't a believer, I don't know if I could survive. There is no hope in this country. It is just, it's deadly. We, we think, oh, if the Republicans win, there's going to be some sort of turning. No, there's not. The, the, the blackmail that is being conducted on this nation uh, from different ethnic groups who are blackmailing different people to businesses and corporations who are blackmailing uh, governors and legislatures and states um, to do evil things, perverted things, is, is astounding. I mean, if you think about it, what, what got me going this morning was to look at the fact that in Georgia, uh, the state legislature passed a really watered-down and diluted religious protection bill that, that initially started off trying to protect private owners of business from being sued if uh, some uh, someone from the homosexual perverted uh, community came in to enlist them in baking a cake or any other kind of service. And if they had a religious, moral, freedom of expression, First Amendment objection, then um, this law was going to protect it. Well, they got rid of all of that to where basically it was just going to protect religious institutions from from being forced to hire uh, homosexuals and other sexual deviants. Uh, that would violate their doctrinal position and their historically held religious position. So it was a m- much reduced and diluted bill. The, gov- the Republican governor of Georgia um, vetoed it. Same thing happened in South Dakota. In North Carolina, a few months ago, the Charlotte City Legislature passed a worse form of the bathroom bill than we had here in Houston, and then the uh, state legislature in, in uh, North Carolina passed a state law prohibiting any such bills being passed by any municipalities. And now those municipalities are all up in arms. And what's happening in the background for this is major corporations are coming in and they are blackmailing and putting pressure on these governments, saying we're going to take our offices out. Bank of America threatens Charlotte, said we're going to move out of state, we're going to leave. All these different businesses are 
are uh, putting pressure on these uh, governments that if they don't allow full freedom of expression and all homosexual deviancy, then then they're going to pull their freight and leave those those states. And where that comes home to roost is if you're working for those companies and you aren't making an exit plan to go work and make money on your own, you are running a great risk. In fact, I've said this since I taught school back in the 70s, that corporations and state governments and even the national government have adopted so many policies, especially through human resources and how you have to treat one another in the corporate environment, that run contrary to the Word of God, that most Christians have compromised their ethics and their morals by even uh, maintaining and having to enforce these these policies at work, that now what's going to happen, I was joking with Alan about it before class, what's going to happen now is that that anybody who's really teaching the Word and trying to hold people to a standard, uh, they're just going to watch more and more people leave their church because they, they're not going to be able to withstand the pressure. If you're working for Exxon or if you're working for uh, General Motors or if you're working for Apple or you're working for Microsoft or any number of these companies, the pressure on you as a Christian to conform your ethics to the postmodern ethics and the sexual ethics of those corporations is going to be intense. So you've got a choice. You can either walk the walk and be a disciple of Christ and suffer, which is what we've been studying about in Matthew and also in Peter, or uh, you're going to have to go find a job somewhere else. Or what will probably happen with most Christians is they'll drift to, you know, one of the uh, larger churches that just teaches very superficial Christianity, and then they'll end up at one of the mega churches that doesn't teach anything that vaguely resembles Christianity because they can't, uh, they're not going to be able to live with the moral tension created in their life just so they can survive. And that really is a lot of the background that we have in First Peter. Peter's writing to this group of Messianic Jews who are living in Asia Minor, and they are facing ostracism from the Jewish community. They're facing opposition from the pagan community, and they are under a lot of pressure. Their ability to do business. I mean, if you know anything about what the Jewish community was like, uh, especially during the Middle Ages. It wasn't quite like that in the first century, but still they, this is a very tight group of people who are uh, doing business with one another. And if someone became a believer in Jesus as Messiah, then they would be ostracized. They would lose those business connections and those business opportunities and, and other things would happen. They, maybe their, uh, their children wouldn't be able to continue to have friends with other uh, Jewish kids and things of that nature. So there was social ostracism as well as economic ostracism uh, because they had become believers in Jesus as Messiah. You had other situations that would occur within the pagan, uh, the pagan community, within the Greco-Roman community. And so this is what these believers were going through, not the kind of overt... um, persecution that later characterized the Roman Empire, not too much later. We know the persecution under Nero, but this precedes that. This is, this is earlier. So 
Peter has really given us extremely practical guidance as to how to face uh, living life in a world that is completely hostile to what we believe. I want you to think about what it would be like. I mean, just think, in the last 20 years, from 1996 to now, if you went back to 1996, could you conceive that we would have a presidential election with the options that we have, that people, half the Democrat Party, are voting and in huge vocal support of an out-and-out Marxist communist, and that on the Republican side, the front runner is somebody who is as ignorant of international affairs and governing as, as, as Trump. He said a lot of things a lot of people agree with, but he said a lot of really inane stupid things that that reveal his lack of experience in government and his lack of understanding of how the how the world works outside of business in the world in the world of, of government and he's in many cases is just a democrat light he is a lot like what we used to have in the south as a southern democrat they were uh, somewhat conservative but they were liberal in a lot of other areas and and as we've uh, sort of progressed over the last 20 years uh, with the Democrat Party moving more and more into the uh, liberal, far-left, socialist uh, extreme, the, the moderates have either gone independent or they're drifting more towards uh, a Republican Party. But they, they, they don't have a philosophical conservatism that backs up their thinking. And so we've just fragmented as, as a nation. And it gets worse every every month. I'm looking at things in terms of this presidential election, and it gets worse and worse and worse. There is no hope in, in, in this next presidential election. The choices are all between really bad and a whole lot worse. And, and it's not going to get any better. And the only hope is to change the internal thinking structure of the American people, which can only be done um, <clears throat> through... I turn back to God. I almost feel like it's time to start teaching judges again because that's exactly what we're headed into is another period where where we just see that a nation go through these cycles of self-destruction because they're, they're, they've rejected the God who created the heavens, the earth, the seas. Oh, yes, marriage between one man and one woman. And nations, God set the boundaries of nations. God rules history. Once you reject that, and you're you're just living in a fantasy world that 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 ultimately dooms us to self destruction. So, with that lovely, upbeat, positive, optimistic introduction, let's move forward in our study in First Peter, because in First Peter. In the next uh, four verses, verses 13 through 16, we see an introduction. There's a transition that occurs between 12 and 13 as we move from the introduction to the epistle into the main body of the epistle. And these first four verses introduce a, a uh, themes that run throughout this epistle and sort of summarize it and set the stage for what will come in the in the first major division. And the focal point is in the command that we have uh, in verse verses 15 and 16 that we are to be holy. It is repeated twice, 
for emphasis. And that's a word that really confuses a lot of people. It's a word that's been uh, used so frequently, so much, in so many circles, by so many people who don't have a clue what it means, that it's come to mean nothing. But it's a feel-good, emotionally connotative word that has these religious associations, so people like to use it but they don't really know what it means. So we need to understand what it means to be holy. And in fact, everything that we see in these four verses relates to what it means to be holy. Now, the most people think that holy means to be morally pure. Sometimes that's also packaged with certain ideas of asceticism, that a holy person is someone who somehow lives above the plane of everyday existence, that they are, um, you know, you know the old saying that they're uh, <clears throat> so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. And, and that's the idea that a holy person is, is so caught up in something. And we have these associations of Buddhist monks and of the, uh, the, 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 um, uh, the monks of the early church in the 4th and 5th century, the monks that would go out and live by themselves in the desert, and or the, the, the uh, pillar monks that would sit on a pillar for a couple of years or four years or five years, and people thought they were so holy because they had given up so much and they would, um, would go through such... Uh, such suffering, self-imposed suffering, that that must make them holy. And so these ideas then entered into the mainstream of medieval theology continue to uh, show up along the way in the after the Reformation in the post-Reformation period as, as some of the churches and denominations in Calvinism, Lutheranism would become fairly creedal and just uh, going through the the forms of litur- liturgy with very little uh, genuine belief or passion to follow the Lord or be truly discipled, they had the rise of different groups like and like the Pietist movement and the Moravians, which was a a missionary group. The Anabaptists could be uh, part of that at different stages. And there's always these kind of reform movements back to some kind of spirituality, but often it is confused with asceticism, which is just a, a product of, of the sin nature. And that's not what holy means at all. Holy, as I've taught you many times, means to be set apart to the service of God. And what exactly does that mean? How do we do that? And that's where we get some good practical guidance in terms of what Paul, or excuse me, in terms of what Peter is saying here. Now, I just want to sort of give you a little reminder that it's very important to understand in in Peter that when Peter talks about salvation, he's not talking about phase one justification. There are three stages or phases. Earl Rodmacher even wrote a book called Three Tenses of Salvation. Phase one, we are saved, past tense, when we trust in Christ as Savior, we're saved from the penalty of sin. It takes place in, a, in an instant when we believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Following that, we have our spiritual life or spiritual growth because we are regenerated. We become a new creature in Christ. That new creature has to grow. 
And we grow as believers, and we're saved from the power of sin, but not everybody grows. Some people are born, and they are they, they almost starve to death for lack of nutrition, whether it's their, due to their own negative volition or the negative volition of their pastors. And then phase three is glorification, the end game. We need to begin with the end in mind, and we're at glorification, we're saved from the presence of sin. And the focal point here is how we can experience salvation and deliverance from trials in our present tense spiritual life, but that is heavily influenced by an understanding of where we're headed in the end game. So we come to this new section, and Peter says, Therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if you just read that in the English, you can get some good points out of it, but it's a bad translation, so we have to rewrite it to understand how to apply it. Verse 14, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. So what we have is four uses of the word holy in two short verses, and that tells us right away that the target, the, 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 the linguistic target, the thematic target that we have in these four verses is to be holy because God is holy and understanding how we do that, the mechanics of how we do that. How do we do that? It's very, very practical here. Now, one of the things that's important in any kind of Bible study or exegesis is to be able to to figure out what your main thought is. Because what we have here, really, and it's punctuated fairly well, is we really have one sentence in these four verses. And we have one sentence, but it's broken into a couple of different independent clauses, uh, and, and it also includes a quotation uh, from the Old Testament. And so when we look at this, we have to figure out what the main thought is. And the way I teach pastors to do this is you have to find your main verb. And because it looks in the English like gird up the loins of your mind is a main verb and that's an imperative. But in the Greek, it's a participle. It's an adverbial participle, which means it modifies a verb. It is, although there are imperatival participles, this isn't one of them, although there's a lot of debate over that. I don't, I don't think this is one of them at all, and that's not the main idea. The main verb is expressed, as I've underlined it here, in the translation, rest your hope. Rest your hope. And if we once we understand that's the main command here, then we understand that the participles that surround it are telling us how to rest our hope in something. That's where the practicality comes in. And that's where we get good guidance from Peter on how we can rest our hope. And so the main thought here is rest your hope, therefore rest your hope, not conforming yourselves to the former lust. So he brings in the negative. It's not by doing one thing, but contrast, you also be holy, for God is holy. 
that's what these that's what this these four verses are about. It's a it's a challenge to hope in God. Now, how do we hope in God? We hope in God by not being conformed to the former lusts that characterized our thinking and our lives as unbelievers, but by being holy, being set apart to God. Now, once you understand that's the thought, the idea is hope in God, not rest your hope. That adds an idea to it. It's a much cleaner, more efficient command. Peter is saying, y'all hope in God. Have your confidence in God's plan for your life. That involves doing two things. Don't conform to your former lusts on the one hand, but be holy, live a life set apart to God on the other hand. Now, if you've got that, you've got what, what Peter is saying here. He's telling us to focus on the future. He's telling us that when we understand the end game, then we have a confident expectation of where, where God is taking us through life, no matter what trials and tests and difficulties may may uh, come up along the way, we can have confidence that God does know what he's talking about since he's omniscient. He does know what he's doing in taking us through these circumstances and situations, and he is working out his will in our life. So let's uh, start breaking this down a little bit into some of the details. First of all, <clears throat> as we look at this, uh, we need to be, we look at the first word, and it's this word dio in the Greek, which is not your normal word that's translated therefore or wherefore. Uh, technically, it's called an inferential particle. Now, what that means is something has been said previously, and he is inferring a result that should follow from what has been said before. And so this is a conjunction that is used to introduce a result clause. Uh, and the result is living a holy life, serving God set apart to him. That result is what should flow from understanding what we've studied in verses uh, 3 and following. So he's writing an audience. They are primarily Messianic Jews, and he is telling them how to live in the midst of this, these fiery trials that they are going to, uh, they are going to uh, run into, they're going to be tested by fire, according to verse seven. So this conjunction tells us that we have to, as I often say in Bible study methods classes, when you see a therefore, you need to see what it's there for. It's drawing a conclusion from what's been said before. So we need to just take a, uh, a quick review of what has been said uh, previously. And so you might have, if you have your Bible open, if you have your Bible open, you should just look back. Let's just look back to verse 3. We read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I pointed out that the word blessed means to praise, to express praise or thanks to God for certain things that he has done. So what has he done? Well, the first thing he mentions is that according to his mercy, he regenerated us. And this regeneration <coughs> gives us an eternal life, but not only an eternal life, but it is a, a life that is directed towards something that 
that Peter says is a living hope. It, it's not a dead hope. It's a living hope. Have you ever noticed when you read through the Old Testament and to some degree in the in the New Testament, you'll see the emphasis on on worshiping God who is the living God. Again and again, God is described as a living God. That's in contrast to worshiping idols, which are made of wood and stone and metal. And you also have passages like those we've seen, we we have in in Isaiah, where you have the people who are seeking guidance from the dead, the necromancers who are going down and they're they're trying to speak to the dead and call them up and going through all these various things. They're looking for hope from the dead, but we have hope in a living God. He is alive, and he is uh, actively involved in human history and bringing it to its ultimate, ultimate conclusion. So we have a living hope because that is a certain conclusion. It is a living hope. And the word hope, as we've seen in the past, is a word that means confident expectation. We use it in English in everyday language, like we'll say, I hope it rains tomorrow. The crops are dry. The foundation needs to be watered. We haven't had enough rain this spring. I hope we really get a good, steady soaking rain for the next couple of days. We have no idea what we're going to get. The the, uh, weather forecast may say 80% chance of rain, but those 80%, that 80% involves 10% of the people somewhere on the other side of the county. So when we say, I hope it rains, we have no clue whether it will or not. It's just wishful optimism. But that's not how the Bible uses the word hope. It uses the word hope as confident expectation, a certainty. And it is so certain that it borderlines on the idea of trust. We're trusting God to bring about what he has said, and that's our hope. So there's these those two words come really close together. I'm making that making a point out of that because of a verse I'm going to point out in just just a minute. So what we see in terms of the wherefore that his mercy has provided us with regeneration, that regeneration directs us towards a goal, a living hope, an end game that we need to that we need to understand. And uh, in fact, this concept of hope is significant all through First Peter. Uh, the noun, which is used there in verse uh, in, in verse three, is used two more times in one twenty one, which isn't far from where we are right now. Who say through him, through him believe in God. That is through Jesus Christ, through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Notice the close connection between faith and hope there. We believe God and therefore gives us a confident expectation so we can live in the midst of the muck and the mire of fiery trials today because we know that there's a reason for it. And then when we get to chapter 3, Peter's going to say, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. And as I read that verse, I think, How many people have ever asked me, you just seem so optimistic and hopeful. Is your hope in the Lord obvious to the unbelievers around you? Often we talk about, well, we have the witness of the life and the witness of the lips. And a lot of people use the witness of the life to bail out so they don't have to ever witness with the lips. But the witness of the life means that your life tells people that you are hopeful, 
uh, you're a cross-eyed optimist. A few of you remember what that song alludes to. Okay? But your optimism isn't just wishful thinking. It's grounded in that certainty with, with God. But how many people ask us, how come you're so positive? How come when you look at the bad things that happen, you are different in the way you respond? That's what Peter's talking about. And then the verb is used one more time in 1 Peter 3, 5, in a context where Peter is talking about women living in submission to their husbands. And he says, for in this way, in former times, it's talking about the Old Testament, the holy women, that means the women who were living in a set-apart way, they were living according to the, the standards of God and grace in their marriage. And they hoped in God. Now, the New King James says they trusted in God. That's where it it blurs this distinction between those two words. But I use the New American Standard here and put in the literal translation because the verb there is the same verb we have in verse 13. It's elpizo. So he hoped in God, used, used to adorn their husband, being submissive to their own husbands. Okay, so this is what happens. We're going back. Why is he saying therefore? He's saying therefore because we have a life that is directed towards this living hope. We also, if we look down a few verses, uh, in verse 4, that there's a certainty of a future inheritance for those who pass the test of faith in the test of adversity. And we see that in this focus of hope, that, for example, in verse 6, we understand that there will be a salvation to be revealed in the last time. That's phase 3, salvation. That's not talking about justification or sanctification. It's the end game because we know it's revealed at the last time at the judgment seat of Christ. Then then we get to the next verse. In verse 6, it talks about how we can rejoice even in the midst of various trials because ultimately we know that our faith is being tested, and this is ultimately going to be revealed at the, uh, at the revelation of Jesus Christ at the end of verse 7. And then if you look at verse 11, it, says, it talks about the fact that, that as we realize deliverance in time, that uh, this relates to uh, what Christ went through. He suffered at the first advent, and he will have glory at the second advent. So we suffer in this life, but there will be glory to come. We also see that therefore goes back to the fact that we are kept by the power of God through faith, for that phase three glorification. Um, that is back in verse five, who are kept by the power of God through faith for that phase three salvation. So what Peter is saying is all of these are true, and in light of them, we are compelled to do something. That's indicated grammatically. In verses three through 12, there are no imperative moods. They are all indicative moods. Now, the significance of that is an indicative mood in the Greek is like a declarative sentence in English. If you all remember when you were taught the four different kinds of sentences in, in English, well, one of the, the first one is the most common, a declarative statement, a statement of fact, a statement of reality, at least from the speaker's viewpoint. It may not be reality, 
But from his viewpoint, it is reality. That's the indicative mood. So Paul does this in all of his epistles, except Paul, like in Ephesians, it's all indicative moods in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Then it's mostly imperative moods after that. He first wants you to understand the realities of who we are in Christ, chapters 1 through 3. And then because that's true, this is how we're supposed to live. And then he just starts slamming us with all of these uh, imperatives and prohibitions in the last half of Ephesians. Well, Peter's doing that here. It's all indicatives in the first 12 verses. This is who we are and what we have in Christ and what our destiny is. And now this is what you should do about it. And we have the imperatives coming up in verses 13 through 16 and then into the rest of this epistle. So the main command is this verb, uh, elpizo, which is translated in the New, New King James as rest your hope. In other versions, it's translated fix your hope, rest your hope, set your hope, put all your hope. And basically what it means is a confident expectation. It should be translated because it's a second person plural, y'all hope. Y'all have a confident expectation in God's plan and purpose for your life taking you into glory. That's what he is saying. So the main idea comes after that phrase, which we'll look at in a minute, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. So the command is rest your hope. Now, it's not just rest your hope. It's followed by an adverb, teleos, meaning completely or wholly, not partially, not in some sort of wimpy, waffling um, fashion, but completely and totally and fully invest yourself in God's plan for your life. If you don't, you're not going to realize the benefit of it. You have to fully hope in God's plan and and purpose. And that's indicated by the next phrase, which is translated fairly well upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that tells us right away because it's it, it has this uh, a future sense to it because it's saying it's brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. That is going to be at the second advent. That's not now. We realize the benefits and the training of the fiery trials only when we are face to face with the Lord and we see the fruit production or the production in terms of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. We won't understand it until we get there. So <clears throat> Peter says this is the grace that is brought to you at that time. Grace because we're delivered from this life. We get a resurrection body. We're going to have, uh, we're no longer going to be plagued by sin. There's no longer uh, corruption in, in the body. We're going to uh, see Jesus as he is. We're going to be face to face with the Lord and we are going to be rewarded and in terms of our obedience in this life and our spiritual growth and our spiritual advance. And this takes place at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this is interesting. This is about the third time in these opening verses that that Peter has taken us outside of time into the second advent and the future. For example, in 1 Peter 1, 7, he says that... Um, 
that this testing of our faith going through these these fiery trials, that that may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Same same phrase. This is when he returns uh, for the church at the rapture. First Peter 4.13, at the end of this epistle, he says, but the, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, that is the degree to which you have grown and matured, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. That will be at the judgment seat of Christ. So what we have here is a verse that's, that is translated somewhat awkwardly where the main command is at the end of the verse, and we have this phrase that's translated as if it's a command preceding it, and that's the phrase, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. Both of those phrases, grammatically, are participles. Participles modify a main verb, and it makes much more sense and comes across as very practical advice if we understand how this works. So, the command is, the verse should be read like this in sort of a reworking and paraphrase. Therefore, that is in light of everything I've said uh, from verses 3 to 12, rest your hope, or y'all hope, y'all have confident expectation fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How do I do that? Begs the question. Well, how do I Hope. How do I practically hope? Well, we're going to get two ways to do this, and they're expressed through these participles. Now, both of these participles, in the Greek it's pretty simple. In the Greek you have a a participle that can have an article in front of it, which we'll see in the next verse. And if it has an article in front of it, then it's probably going to function like a noun. So it's either an adjective or maybe it's, it's, it's used like a substantive, like a noun. Other times when that participle doesn't have an, uh, an article in front of it, that tells you that it's probably being used to modify a verb. It's telling you something about the verb. So if the verb is a command to do something and it's surrounded by these adverbial adject, uh, these adverbial participles, then those adverbial participles often tell us how to do the command or what we should be doing in fulfilling the command. In other words, they're participles of means, are participles, are uh, instrumental participles, telling us how to do that, like walk by means of the Spirit. That's an instrumental idea there. So... The first, the first participle that we have is the participle that's translated girding up, which is a literal translation, girding up the loins of your mind. Obviously, this is a figure of speech. So it, uh, it's an aorist middle participle. Now, if we go back a little bit to our, there we go. To our basic command, what do we have here? An aorist active imperative. That's always important because if your verb is an aorist tense verb and you've got an aorist tense action, it, the participle, then that's telling you that uh, the action of the participle either precedes or is at the same time the action of the verb. So it's telling us, uh, r- makes it very clear that this is telling us how we are to... Uh, how we are to 
uh, rest, how we are to hope in God. We hope by girding up the loins of our mind. In other words, if you don't gird up the loins of your mind, you're not going to ever develop hope. And nobody's going to ever say, can you explain to me this hope that you have? Okay, so if you, you the, so you get a two-step procedure. Step one is you've got to gird up the loins of your mind. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, this is a time-honored phrase in the Scripture, and we find it in a couple of different places in the Old Testament. We have uh, Elijah is going to go on a little foot race with uh, Ahab. Ahab was the king of the northern kingdom, and he's uh, just been defeated by Elijah and all the prophets of Baal and the Asherah are all killed up on Mount Carmel. And so he heads back to his capital city at Jezreel, and uh, Elijah is going to outrun him. Now, if any of you have ever run, you know that you you can't wear a long flowing robe and expect to get any speed because that robe is going to get in your way. So you have to figure out how to either take it off or tie it off so it's no longer restricting your movements. And that's the idea of the phrase girding up your loins. We'll see an illustration of this in just a minute. Job 38, we have the uh, exhortation by God to Job. Job's been wanting to have a conversation with God about whether or not this suffering that God allowed in his life is really just and fair. And so God says, basically, so you want to have a conversation, Job? Come on out. Gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, get ready. We're going to have a conversation, but I'm going to be the one to do all the talking. So the idea of girding up is an idiom for getting prepared for some task, getting ready. Jeremiah one seventeen. Thou therefore gird up thy loins and arise and to speak unto them all that I command you. God speaking and he's telling Jeremiah to get ready. Now these phrases are translated idiomatically in various English translations as uh, tuck in your robes, which is a more literal translation, or get ready or get prepared. We have a New Testament example in Ephesians 6.14 where we're told, Stand therefore, having your loins gird about with truth. Now, if you know the context, which I didn't want to get into all the details there, it's describing the panoply of God. Great word. Next time we sing it in our hymn, you'll know that panoply means full armor of God. It talks about the breastplate of righteousness talks about the helmet of salvation, and it talks about the uh, sword of the Spirit and the um, uh, the shield of faith and the, uh, <clears throat> the, the belt of truth. Now, this is a depiction of the Roman belt, and the Roman belt was the anchor for everything else because the breastplate tied off and hooked to the belt, kept it in place. You're, you hung your sword from the... Uh, from from the belt, and the belt was how you would tie off your if you had a robe on how you would tie it off so it wouldn't get uh, wouldn't get in your way and you would hang some other things from your belt as well so it would all be prepared so the belt in the analogy of the armor is truth the truth is the word of God Jesus prayed to the Father sanctify them in truth thy word is truth, and truth is what binds and holds everything together. Without truth, you don't have anything. So in the ancient world, 
you have a situation where you need to gird up your loins. So I ran across this on the Internet today, just trying to find if there was a good illustration. I thought this would work. In the first panel, you have your your ancient Israelite standing there wearing his full-length robe and tunic, and it would, wouldn't do to go out in the fields and work with that long robe on. It would get in his way. You couldn't fight in battle, so you'd have to gird your loins. So the first thing you would do in the second panel is you would uh, pull the tunic up until all the fabric is, beneath, uh, is above your knees. That's going to get rid of the distractions. And then what you do is you pull it all forward and you bunch it all up so that it, it all pulls together and then you take it down in the next panel and you run it back between your knees, grab it from behind and pull it up so that it's tight. It's no longer loose where it could come, uh, come loose and get, get in the way. You pull each side up in the second panel to the side, pull it around in front and tie it off so it is secure. That is how they would gird up their loins. Now you have a much better understanding of what this means. So this becomes uh, the, the image that basically it has the idea of removing anything that is a hindrance to your endeavor. So if your endeavor is to go work in the fields, you don't want to constantly be bending over to pull out the weeds or to plant and and trip over the robe and fall down. You've got to get it out of your way. So it's real simple. Trouble is, in the spiritual life, there are all kinds of things that get in our way, and we love them too much. So we don't want to get rid of those distractions. And the same thing happens in combat. You don't want to go into combat where you might have to run or you need to have a high degree of maneuverability and have your robes getting in your way where you can trip over them and all kinds of terrible things would happen, including losing your life. So uh, this is the idea in... Um, in girding up your loins. Today, we would, if you're a football player, this would mean that you're going to go put on your pads and your uniform and your helmet, and you're going to make sure you have those right kind of Nike shoes or Puma shoes or whatever you're going to wear, and everything's going to be right, So that, and you've got the slickest, tightest, uh, whatever uh, that you're going to wear uh, for your for your. Uh, for your pants and for your for your jersey, so that you are going to be able to, uh, to to play to your maximum ability. Or if you're in track, you're going to get one of those really great suits they use now that almost make you run faster because of the way they uh, they let the wind slip around you. So that's the idea. Uh, a soldier in the ancient world is going to put on his armor, his sword, his shield, his helmet. He's going to get ready. Now, spiritually, we have another image of this in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore we also, that is, we as believers, because we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that is, these witnesses from the Old Testament who have gone before us, and then the exhortation, the challenge, let us lay aside every weight, and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And we all know what those sins are in our life. And too often we make excuses for them and rationalize them. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is we have to completely cut out the situations and circumstances that give rise to that. Uh, Lay aside every right and the sin which so easily ensnares us, 
and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's the same idea, girding up your loins. And we do that how in in Hebrews? Verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. See, that's the problem-solving device, inner happiness, the, the, the joy of a job well done, the joy of, of rejoicing at the judgment seat of Christ uh, for us. The joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. The cross wasn't joyful. It, it, he was miserable the night before he went to the cross in anticipation of the cross. But there was something greater. There was the joy of accomplishing what God intended, and that is what he focused on. So that's what we're to focus on, is the end game, which is the judgment seat of Christ. So uh, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and then he's glorified. He sits down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the idea that Peter is presenting. We suffer now, we endure it, we focus on the end game, for the glory that will be uh, ours and for the Lord for all eternity. So, in 1 Peter 1.13, Peter says, You are able to, to, y'all are able to have hope because or by girding up the loins of your mind. See, he mixes his metaphor there a little bit. You have to get rid of all those mental distractions. This calls for mental attitude dynamics. You have to learn to think correctly and to discipline your mind to keep from thinking the thoughts that you shouldn't be thinking and and focusing back on what you should be focusing on. So the, the word for mind is the Greek word dianoia, Idea uh, is the preposition, and noia comes from the Greek noun for mind, uh, nous. And so it has this idea of mind, uh, girding up the loins of your mind, or it could be thinking, girding up the loins of your thinking, your thought process, your intellectual ability, your understanding, those things. And we see this emphasis in Scripture that the spiritual life is not a life of emotion. The other day, somebody sent me a uh, a thing on uh, on on Facebook, a link to a page that that was. If you know what the Onion is on the internet, which is a a sort of a, a sarcastic, uh, um, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, just a sarcastic approach to um, uh, different contemporary issues. And this was a uh, tongue in cheek, sarcastic approach about this contemporary church. That was just had went through worship collapse on a Sunday morning because one of their ten fog machines that they use during prayer time, so everybody will feel closer to God, broke down. Okay, so see that's that's contemporary spirituality is about emotion and feeling. Uh, I've heard of churches where when it's time to pray. The music goes real soft. You have a certain kind of music. The lights dim. And sometimes they use these fog machines. They really do. And they have to set, they're, they're manipulating emotions because emotion is how you evaluate whether or not you are, you're worshiping. And so, uh, this is the problem. But in scripture, the spiritual life is a life of thought. It's a life, life of thinking, analysis, intellectual activity, not a life of emotion. Look at things. Um, 
The word mind is used positively in Scripture. Uh, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Jesus quoting from Deuteronomy, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your emotions, right? No, with all your mind, your thinking. And heart is an emotion there. These terms heart, soul, and mind are used synonymously for everything inside you. It's controlled by your thinking. Second Peter 3, 1, Peter will say, uh, Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle. I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Notice he doesn't say, I'm stirring up your emotions. He says, I'm stirring up your thinking. I want you to think about this. It's used negatively in passages like Luke uh, one fifty one, talking about the proud and the imagination of their hearts. In Ephesians 4.18, unbelievers have their uh, understanding darkened. And Colossians one twenty one, Paul says that in, in their unbelieving state, they were alienated and enemies in their thinking to God. But now they have been reconciled. We see critical passages like Romans 12, 2, and 3. Do not be conformed to this world. We'll see that same word used in First uh, Peter one fourteen here in just a minute. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, not the renewing of your emotions, that you may prove or demonstrate what is, that the that that uh, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And then he goes. Paul goes on to say, "For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think. It's a different word for thinking, but it's a synonym." Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Notice he doesn't say not to feel about yourself more highly than you ought to feel. See, that's how our idiom is now. God doesn't care. I don't care what people feel. I want to know what they think. Okay? And then we have the word, but they are to think soberly. That's a synonym to a word we're going to see in just a minute here. It's uh, This is the word sofra now, and it means to think objectively. It's not talking about the absence of alcohol. It is talking about that when a person's under the influence of alcohol, they don't think as clearly. So the idea here isn't the exclusion of alcohol. It's clear thinking, objective thinking, wise thinking. Second um, Corinthians 10.5, we're to cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Christianity is about thinking. Uh, Romans 8, 5 through 7. We're carnally minded or we're spiritually minded. And the word phronemo there comes from the verb phroneo, which means to think. We're to be renewed in the spirit. That's the content of our mind or our thinking in Ephesians 4.23. So in 1 Peter 1.13, we're told that we are to y'all be confident, have a confident expectation upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ by, first of all, uh, girding up the loins of your mind, being prepared mentally. How do you get prepared mentally? You get prepared mentally by studying the Word of God. How often do I have to study the Word of God? Well, let's see. 24-7. And that's not enough. We have such a low level of expectation among evangelical Christians. We, we, we think somebody's done really well if they're 20 years old and they can recite all, the, all 66 books of the Bible. And if they can give us three salvation verses. Well, what about having whole chapters memorized like John 3 or Romans 8 
or Ephesians 1, or Ephesians 2, or Ephesians 5, or Galatians 5, or half of Galatians 2. We should have these things memorized. We should have whole books of the Bible. A lot of times when you get past a certain age, it's a lot harder. This is one of the things that you should be drilling into those little kids. By the time they learn to read, they should have half the New Testament memorized because they can do it. There's nothing else in those little minds. Let them soak up the Word of God. Challenge them. They can do it. Okay, so so we do this by girding up the loins of our minds and second, by thinking objectively. That's the result of getting rid of the distractions in your thinking. Have clear, self-controlled thinking. Now, in verse 14, Peter's going to add to that. He says, as obedient children, why, we're all in the family of God now. As children, we should be obedient to our Father. So what does that mean? Well, negatively, it means we're not to conform ourselves to the former lust. We're not to be put into the mold. And this is the word, excuse, schematizo. And again, it's an instrumental participle. So the, the idea here is that how do we how do we hope? Well, we hope by not conforming ourselves to former lust. If you're letting lust, any of the different categories of lust, whether it's a sexual lust or approbation lust or power lust, or whether it's in uh, some kind of chemical lust or monetary lust or any of the different lusts, if that is what's motivating your life then you're never going to be able to rest your hope in God. You're never going to be able to hope in God because you've got a major distraction. You're you're wearing three or four robes, and you're not girding anything up. You're just tripping all over yourself day in and day out, and you're never going to get anywhere in the race that is set before us. So how do we do it? We've got to not conform our thinking to the former uh, lusts as in your ignorance. Notice that ignorance is contrasted to thinking, knowing something. We have to know the Word of God. Ignorance is the opposite. That's the same word, by the way, that is used in Romans 12, too, not to be uh, conformed to this world, to be pressed into the mold of the world. We need to look differently, act differently, and think differently. And corporate America is forcing its employees to think like pagans. That goes back to my opening bad news. That is what's happening. And it's happened for 50 years or more. But it's really bad now. And if you want to hold fast to the absolutes of Scripture, if you're down in the Bible Belt, you're fortunate. But Georgia's in the Bible Belt. North Carolina's in the Bible Belt. Of course, South Carolina, I don't know what belt that's in. The grain belt or something. But these other states are where there should be biblical truth. Charlotte, North Carolina passed a bathroom bill, the home of Billy Graham and Franklin Graham. Let's put that into perspective a little bit. There's some truth there, okay? Southeastern seminaries are founded by Norm Geisler, okay? This is a major problem. Uh, Peter also talks about this problem of lust in other passages. First uh, Peter 2.11, he says, um, Abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. And First uh, Peter 4.2 and 3, he says uh, that we should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but instead for the will of God. 
And he talks about our former life, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. What characterizes the believer in the church age is going to be completely different from the unbeliever. Now, I'll tell you a quick story. First church I ever candidated in got this all wrong. This was over in the heart of Cajun, Louisiana, Opelousas, Louisiana, home of Jim Bowie. Okay, so I, I got invited to come over there and candidate for this church. In the, in the, the, I think the first question was on my philosophy of ministry. The second question in the interview process was, would I preach against smoking, drinking, and dancing? These people were all saved out of an intensely hypocritical, two-faced Roman Catholic culture. Now, I'm not saying all Roman Catholics are that way, but they wanted to, they so badly wanted to distinguish themselves from the hypocritical Roman Catholics who were not living any differently from the world, that they had slipped into this superficial legalism, and they wanted... They, they, they didn't want anybody that was an, a, a Christian going to their church to do anything that a Roman Catholic did. You've got to be different. That is, this is not a superficial type of, of command here. But we should think different, so we'll live differently. And then we get to the thrust of this opening section where Peter says the real issue is to be different. That's what it means to be holy, not necessarily to be morally pure and perfectly righteous. But as he who called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. Now, the word holy, the Greek word hagios is based on the Greek word kadash, and it means to be separated unto God in terms of applying to us. When it's applied to God, I think it has the idea of being distinct and unique. It's the creator-creature distinction. God is distinct and unique from everything that he created, and we are to live unto him. It doesn't have the idea of moral purity because there were masculine forms of that word and feminine forms of that word that applied to the priests and the fertility cults who were basically cultic prostitutes. So that, there's nothing morally pure or ethically pure about that. But they were set apart to the service of their God. That's the idea. So what Peter is saying, to paraphrase it, is something like this. But as he who called you is distinct and set apart from his creation, you also be distinct and set apart in all your conduct. Because it is written, be distinct and set apart, for I am distinct and set apart. Now, I think that will give you a little bit of a different slant on what it means to be holy. So how do we achieve the holy life as we close up? First of all, we need to think as God thinks. We need to align our thinking with the creator God of the universe who is distinct from his creation. Uh, Again and again and again, this is what sets God apart in the Old Testament. He's a living God. He's not a God of metal, stone, and wood. And we need to think as he thinks. Second, we need to quit thinking like Satan and the world thinks. We need to not be conformed to the world. The world is Satan's system. We need to think like God wants us to think, and the more we go down this toilet of paganism in this country, the more we are going to be at odds with everyone and everything around us. The old life we had where we could live in a comfort zone as a Christian because we had a, a culture that was still heavily influenced by Christianity is over with. That realization started in 1963, and I think it came to fruition 
last June in that horrible Supreme Court decision that legitimized homosexual marriage. We used to be able to talk about the LGBT community. Now it's the LBGTQQ, I don't know, XYZ. I've summarized it. One word covers all those alphabets, pervert. We need to quit thinking like Satan and the world thinks. And finally, we need to focus on the end game. The end game is what gets us through now. We understand that that we're headed somewhere. There's a purpose, there's a plan, and there is going to be joy and glory at the end. But if we fail in the meantime, there won't be much joy and glory at the judgment seat of Christ. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and be challenged by your word, to recognize that we have a, a vital role to play as, as witnesses in the angelic conflict, witnesses in a pagan culture, and that we are to live in a way that distinguishes us from the pagans around us. We live different because we think differently. We think differently because we are different at the at the core of our being. Father, we pray that we would be we would have the spiritual courage and the spiritual strength to fulfill the mission. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.